Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming, Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have another awesome triple header for you on this Modern Marvels Wednesday. We're going to kick things off with a look at X-Men Red number 3, before turning our attention to Wolverine number 22, and closing things out with a look at Moon Knight, Black, White, and Blood number 2. We have so much going on today, we're going to jump right in, so we hope you guys enjoy this coverage of our trip to the world of Araco and the incredible mutants that reside there. And don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So feel free to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Welcome to another exciting segment of X's for podcast. Today we are talking about the interstellar X-Men Red. I am Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter. That's Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can find me just trying to throw shade at Agent Brand. Hey everybody, I'm Jake. You can find me at Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that would make me Raven, aka a dame red thread you can find me over on twitter and instagram and i hope you survive unlike iska's memory of the time that she lost Uh. (laughs) she did because she did and i swear to god i will tooth and nail (laughs) drag out knock down fight for it's the entire reason she changed color she was red for the entire run of x of swords because that's her base color because that's what we she was for the entire time that she's been alive but whoa when apocalypse put on the annihilation mass and concedes for Araco, and she was a sword bearer for Araco, and she had no time to parlay with opalescent saturnine or the kirkoan so no she couldn't have switched teams her team lost she lost she changed color both war and famine noted that she changed color and look shook at it she fucking lost she fucking lost she may be an omega but that does not mean her power set is completely infallible it just means it's rare that it fails her does changing color really mean she lost or does it mean she switched sides because that's what i always took it to mean that's yeah awesome. I was how, how are you going to switch sides when you have <laughs> pyro in your hand you've just beaten him either dead or unconscious you don't have any time to actually talk to the Krakoans and let them know, hey, I'd like to join your team. And do you think the Krakoans would actually let her join? No, she's just beaten a bunch of their people unconscious or dead. On top of that, Opalescent Saturnine is still in the middle of her spell. She would not let her switch sides. There is no parlay that happened. She couldn't have switched sides. Even if she switched sides in her head, that doesn't mean anybody would have accepted her on her side. Therefore, she could not have switched sides. She could not have won in any capacity capacity and she is still the sword bearer for Araco, tying her to the Arakan team who lost. Oh, there you have it. You definitely spent a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and stewing in it, it sounds like because I love her character. I really, really do, but you have to admit what it is when it is. We're just gonna dive right on into it. So <laughs> 
me real quick is uh, written by the fantastic Al Ewing. Stefano Caselli is our artist. Federico Blee and Photo Bunkers. Fernando Fuentes, our color artist and friend of the show. Very VC's Ariana Mayer is our letterer in production. So Yay! we're going to get right into that then. So one of the events that happened, obviously, in this issue, which is very strong point for Raven, was... <laughs> No, Beto. no, it's just, you know, it's just a, it's just a tiny footnote point right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While Magneto is fighting Tarn, Beto vets Iska the Unbeaten that <laughs> Tarn will win. <laughs> which, which I have my opinions on that as well. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's extremely manipulative of him, but I think that's the whole point. It seems like he's trying to pull her into, instead of she's just sitting there neutral to the conflict, her arms folded, watching it unfold, not expressing an opinion. He draws her in. By, by making her sit on one side or the other. And if she's on the side that can't lose, then Magneto has to win. That oh was my god, my That's there's the assumption that he wasn't going to win to begin with. He came in with his helmet off and he slammed that thing down on Tarn's head. It blocks mental powers and he immediately crushed it. Well, and so it really does leave the door open to interpretation. Was it purely Magneto, which is totally, I think, a totally reasonable way to walk away from that scene reading it? Or was it you know at least aided in part by this like this gambit that sunspot took which cost him his life i feel like magneto was going to win regardless because this is a flawlessly executed plan and also he's magneto but like i think that the main thing is that now iska because of her belief about the nature of her powers and perhaps because of the nature of her powers feels responsible regardless and is going to feel cheated and insulted by it and i think this is a little bit of insurance for bobby because honestly i think bobby knows that magneto could win this fight he knows him very well but he's like why not go and bet against you know uh, with uh iska why not why not make sure it will happen the way i need it to happen bobby uh, or berto might be you know an asshole and a playboy but he's not stupid he's gonna stack the deck as much as he possibly can to make sure that what he feels is the right outcome comes out he baited magneto and then he baited iska both of whom are very savvy and good at either avoiding manipulation or seeing manipulation. And both of them took the bait. Yeah. Iska may not have had anything to do with this at all mm-hmm. because Beto just bets Iska that Tarn will win, but she never accepts the bet. And exactly. in, my, in my book, you have to actually take a bet for a bet to be on. Somebody could bet me a thousand dollars about something. And then just because it happens doesn't mean I'm going to give them a thousand dollars. Like exactly. Iska didn't take that. She just kind of assumes that she has by being bet against, which mm-hmm. if that's the way her powers work, then she this must happen to her all the time. <laughs> well, she's she's like, hey, clear on the you. fact that her powers are a curse as well, like her as much of a curse. There's a curse of always winning there's a curse of never losing it's that you can be it's why she doesn't vote in great ring decision making because right anytime she votes it will be a win for her she, because she can't lose and so my sense is that she's she is manipulatable but people are generally too afraid to do it well yeah, yeah because but like if she doesn't take the bet it's sort of like abstaining from voting i would think mm-hmm. but she seems mm-hmm. she seems to be under the impression that immediately it is on yeah which uh, to me i think berto actually bet her because he knew what her reaction would be. And so, you know, he he bet her knowing that she would just go like nuclear, like what the, what the, like, and make a commotion. And that commotion is going to slightly break the concentration of anybody who's not hyper-focused and on the situation at hand, which Magneto knows already what he's going to do. So I think Berto is just providing a little extra cover. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I would think so. Oro Serata even goes like, well, we're going to ignore this. Like, they kind of come together. I don't know. It's a strange yeah. scene because it doesn't seem like Iska really accepts the bet. She just acts as if she has. I, I figured, like, she was just insulted by it, but she legitimately seems to think that she affected the outcome. Oh, of course. I mean, I, like I said, I fucking love Iska. She's a badass. She's a, a very interesting character, like most of the Iraqis are. They are very kind of wrapped up in in kind of black and white thinking there's not a whole lot of gray area so it's kind of interesting to meet a, a culture where thinking is so black and white because yeah like like you said like we don't know if she actually took that bet but she believes she did we we don't know a lot of things like how infallible her power actually is but you know she she doesn't know either she just assumes that she never loses right how does it work does she have to believe that she's playing in order for her powers to come into play or do her powers come to play whether or not she's interested like that's it's such an interesting vague concept iska will always be like such an amazing enigma to me how about how about in this fight by the way he's really hot he's oh my god (laughs) this blood on my hand i accept so cool like when when is just shooting somebody for what he considers like a noble or dutiful cause he's just like all right more blood for these hands I just, I love the emotional range Magneto's getting throughout this whole series so far. I mean, like, we have him on page 12. Like, another nine-panel close-up emotional Magneto, like, in the first issue when he was talking to Kingfisher about all of his failures while building his palace. You know, we've got another sequence where he's moving through his feelings, talking about Anya, his first do- his first daughter who is human oh. and who could never be resurrected. Oh, that um, hurt. Yeah. I mean, and this is the second time in recent memory he's he's been thinking about Anya. The last was at the end of the Hellfire Gala when he invited Wanda to Krakoa before she died. It's very interesting to see that this is this is very present in his mind right now. And I'm curious about whether or not this means we're going to see some development of that story, although, you know, obviously humans can't be resurrected and Anya was human. Or if what Magneto does on Arako is somehow about processing that deep grief, you know, and taking this taking a new responsibility in this world, you know, taking a new kind of leadership role among a new kind of mutant civilization. You know, he's never been a leader of a strong mutant nation before. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very, very, very keen to see the direction Ewing is taking Magneto as a character right now, because it's just, it's it's so raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like seeing Magneto not be in his usual position, which is that of, like, domination, conquest. Like, I, if there's a group of us mutants and we're doing something bad, I want to be in control, and I want to dominate everything so that it can go the way yep. I think it should. Now that Magneto's dream has been realized and Krakoa and then shattered by later events like he's such a different type of person like he's the same guy but he's just learned some things and it's great seeing him say like yeah like I could kill Tarn and that would be good yes but does this mean we're going to set me in his place and make another Krakoan pushing Arako towards like what we think it should be and it's really it's really powerful to see Magneto, the character Magneto, say like, well, should I be in power? Like, is that a good idea? Is are we are we doing something wrong here by making things go our way rather than the way of the people around us? And that's something that we've never seen from Magneto before, but that's because we've never really seen any reason for him to think that about humans on Earth or other mutants on Earth. This culture is an entirely different one, and it's one that he respects on the pure basis of what it is, a free mutant society. And 
it's interesting to see the difference in his approach to that, especially after having succeeded and then later failed in his original dreams. He talks about it's not as much should it be him, but he says, should another Krakoan sit on the Iraqi council? Is that going to help anything? And he's like, no, I don't think they can help anything. And he's very hesitant to even want to step up. Even at the end, he still doesn't really want to challenge Tarn because he knows we'll have to kill him. It's not that he mind killing Tarn. It doesn't want the weight. He doesn't want to gentrify Iraqo yes. with Krakoan like politics and ideas. Exactly. He's, yeah. He's finally decolonizing his mindset because his mindset has been a colonizer's mindset pretty much from the get-go. Even if it was just, I need to make a safe city-state or nation where just my people can be, which has a very Zionist kind of feel to it, uh, seeing what his background is. Yeah, he's, he's trying to create an ethno-state, but it's as a reaction to the genocide that is being leveled against his people. So it's not necessarily that he hates humans he's just very afraid for anybody who has mutant powers is going to be targeted by these hateful terrible people who targeted me because i was just jewish let alone you know anything else that i turned out to be later on so he had that colonizer mindset for a long time and i think he's slowly trying to undo a lot of that thinking by not placing himself in a position where he's going to have power well he's been humbled a few times through his history though the one that I'm thinking of outside of the Krakoan era is after the decimation when he goes to join Utopia and he like literally bows at Cyclops's feet, you know, he takes a back seat, not in prime leadership. You know, he stays on the extinction team. He stays with Cyclops through the, the Phoenix Five era. He joins that like underground team of revolutionary X-Men, but he's never their leader at that point. He's he understands that there's a there needs to be a handoff that like that that at a certain point the older generation needs to let the next generation like live out and realize their visions and their values. And I think that there's some echo of this in the Magneto that we're seeing now. He's collaborating but not leading this group with Aurora and Beto and Kingfisher. He's very humble in these dealings. He's very like, I don't want to do this. I don't think I can do this. Fine. You really need me to do this. I'll do it then. But like, I don't want to. And at the same time, you've got these other these other forces kind of encroaching and enclosing. I mean, I'm really, really interested in this arm of like Cable and Thunderbird and Manifold and whatever, like their, their press against Brand and what she's been, her machinations on Narako. Can we talk about the first half of the book? Because a lot happened. Let us start at that scene in the hatchery in Arbor Magna. Cable's resurrected. Yay! This scene right here goes from a simple resurrection scene into some straight up political intrigue. So Thunderbird and Manifold come to have a talk with Cable about Brand. Do we think they are talking to him about Brand? You know, like, hey, why you should do that? Or is he a double agent for Krakoa and Brand? I don't think Thunderbird or Cable would ever willingly work into the machinations of Abigail Brand. So I yeah. think they're having a frank discussion about what she's trying to do. Yeah, I think the presence of Manifold here is the key, right? Like, because he's not going to work with anybody he doesn't trust. And at this point, if Cable was still working for Brand, if Manifold even thought that was possible, I don't think he would want to be with him. Mm -hmm. But I do remember the techno-organic shenanigans. I don't know if that's over now, now that she sucked out his load in the last <laughs> I honestly giggled like a friggin' teenager for a good five minutes solid. I'm like, oh my god, you can't do this to me. 
Well, it's a new way of talking about it, though, isn't it? This was not the way Cable talked about his techno-organic virus in the 90s. And it it's... Yes, it was. You know, it, he talked he talked about it in terms of viral load. Was that an actual term that he was using? No, no he just talked about keeping it in check. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. He talked about it in couched language, like the couched language that they used in the 80s and 90s when you were talking about having HIV or AIDS. Because right. I believe this was supposed to be kind of analogous to having a disease you could not get rid of and would eventually kill you. That's what it feels like now is the idea that, like you know, we talk about U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. Viral load is a really important part of that discussion. The fact that it's coming into a more popular, the language language is coming into more popular nomenclature, like seeing Cable talk about his viral load reminds me of friends I know who talk about, you know, maintaining their healthy, you know, their HIV regimen, you know, making sure that their viral loads stay low so they can stay healthy. It's a term that I never expected to see in an X book before. I can only think of it as kind of inclusive and, you know, pointing towards, you know, how our own language is developing around these things. Well, I've, I've noticed in a lot of the X books, a lot of the language is kind of updating itself which I attribute to fabulous writers who are trying to keep a lot of the analogies current. Therefore, of course, language needs to change. When Cable came out in like the, I want to say late 80s, early 90s-ish, I always kind of saw him as somebody who has a, a terminal illness that if they let it go out of check, it will end up just consuming them and, and killing them, which I always saw as a major analogy to something like either cancer or AIDS, more likely, because he acquired this. It was given to him. It wasn't something that just happened on its own. So I, I like the way he used to talk about it because it that fit very much for that time where a lot of it was very kind of hush-hush. But yeah, they've updated the language beautifully, honestly, in a lot of ways. And I, oh, this is why I love him talking with, with Thunderbird is because Thunderbird's character was killed. His character was much beloved in the exceedingly short run that he had. But, you know, bringing him back, what are you going to do? Make him happy-go-lucky? Or are you going to use him as a very very good analogy for missing and murdered or otherwise marginalized indigenous peoples and he's angry he is angry for all the good reasons too and he's like oh yeah thanks for all that great acting back there he's like that wasn't acting i meant every fucking word of it i'm like thank you yeah thank yeah. you oh yeah you thought i was acting cable <laughs> right? no i still hate your fucking gut cyclops jr <laughs> right like the, the white hubris was just like cable seriously you thought he was was acting oh shit no dude no how, how great is it that thunderbird still calls cable jr like to his yeah. face i mean he, he was he was a baby after thunderbird died so i guess that's completely fair Thunderbird's much older right. i'm still in love with this new thunderbird costume oh, i think God, yes. i think it's such a stunning stunning look the turquoise yes. is just so eye-popping and this red masking over his eyes it's a face paint or a war paint of some kind mm -hmm. i don't know mm -hmm. it's it's gorgeous. Yeah. He looks like an unbelievable badass. Right. Yeah. yeah. I would not want to get in a fight with him, but I would not mind being rescued by him at all. Uh, <laughs> right? Like, he's angry. Like, he's exceedingly angry, which I understand why. But yeah, like, I love the fact that they, they kept a lot of this very gorgeous intonations of, of Native American, but also updated his costume so it doesn't hit so on the nose because yeah. that was a little cringe when it hit directly on the nose also manifold looks hot as fuck 
all praises to Stefano Caselli for all of these characterizations of these just delicious superheroes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get to the little showdown between Aurora and uh, Bran. I <laughs> <laughs> love that Brand is in a throne yes. now, unlike Aurora, who destroyed her throne. She's not even in a throne. She's in a 1960s office furniture. That is a big egg chair throw. I, I love it. And she's sitting in the chair so bisexually. Oh my God. Like I'm amazed she didn't have a cat in her lap that she was suggestively petting. I do like the new costume that Storm is wearing in pieces. I just still have trouble with certain parts of it. I'm not a fan of the hip slit or the, the giant, hey, here's my midriff. It's okay. like, can we just give her a costume that like like fully covers? Because I get that she's supposed to have like this badass kind of punk motorcycle rider kind of look and everything, but she's running a Rocco and there are a lot of mutants who have like touch-based powers. So yeah. having a little extra coverage, especially over your vital fucking organs. Okay, but so hey, like, you know, Jumbo Carnation probably made it and he's just so used to making Emma Frost outfits like he can't make anything without <laughs> so like maybe she's tired I mean, after wearing an entirely body oh. covering even her neck suit for like four years very unusual for she wears bathing suits all the time even her hellfire gala outfit it was gorgeous but it was basically I mean, yeah, a bathing she's suit been a long time in the in the bodysuit you know yeah five or six years well, it's a i mean but give her just give her clothing like you give abigail <laughs> brand clothing just give her clothing instead of this spandex zentai with cutouts I'm just i mean maybe it's for ventilation you know that's just really it's <laughs> really tight it needs oh, you need to breathe she's a, oh your skin needs to breathe. i do don't you <laughs> <laughs> i do really like abigail brand's haircut though yes she does look like an awesome villain like i love mm. hating her right now i, oh, I yeah. loved liking her back at, i mean like i don't love where she was introduced but i do i have really kind of enjoyed the arc of her character as this mm-hmm. morally gray i'll do anything <laughs> to protect the earth like i'm not really a mutant i'm not really an alien i'm not really a human i'm all three of those things and none of them like fuck it i love her she's all three of those things that I have no allegiance to any of them. <laughs> I love you. I can never put her down for killing Henry Peter Gyrick. I'm sorry. Mm, I hated that mm, guy. Mm. No, no, yeah. that was a, he's exactly that was who I would have thrown out of an airlock. In the yeah. yeah. I, I would have aimed for the sun. <laughs> 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 the dude's been a piece of shit first. When did he appear? Ever? Like yeah, forever. Rest in peace, Henry Peter Gyrick. <laughs> no, no, not rest. No, in rest in peace. So I'm wondering if there's any of her plan being revealed in this conversation here. And given the sort of mention of Empress Zandra and the presence of Vulcan and the way mm. she's trying to manipulate him, I'm wondering whether or not Brand is going to try and put or is going to like do some kind of play to put Vulcan on the throne of Shi'ar again. Mm-hmm. Because oh, that yeah. seems like a brand move. Yeah. Oh, she would have. I think if Tarn had lost to Vulcan, she would have tried heavily to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vulcan. You know, at first I wanted to think that Vulcan was just kind of up his own ass. But honestly, I think he is exceedingly mentally unstable. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, to the I mean, level of being very up. much unfit mm-hmm. to rule over a playground sandbox. Yeah. I mean, you you probably remember what he was like when he was dictator of the Shi'ar. It's not like oh, there's yeah. a good dictator 
dictator. And mm-hmm. It's not like there's a good dictator of the Shi'ar, but Vulcan yeah. is somehow the worst of all of those things. And, <laughs> yeah, and that's and, impressive. And a lot of it to do with his mental instability, and a lot of it is to do with the circumstances of his birth, growth, adulthood, <laughs> oh, and dictatorship. Yeah. Like, he's just, it's not been going well. <laughs> the poor boy's a product of his environment. <laughs> Uh, speaking of environment. <laughs> we have this thread running through Hickman's X-Men that is mm-hmm. now being picked up here where Vulcan, Gabriel, was manipulated by some alien species after he fell from the throne of Shi'ar so that he would have this veneer of goodness over like the explosive, scary monster sun creature mm-hmm. that lives inside of him. And now we're seeing in this data page with Mentallo that that's beginning to fail and everyone's a little scared of that. Who knows about yeah. it? Everyone who can see it is very scared of it everybody should be very afraid of it because the last time vulcan's shell failed he was he was in a position to do a lot of damage and he did do a lot of damage it was just luckily away from earth many 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 light years away from earth and now he's on mars and he's getting drunk in bars and he's throwing fights and he's having hallucinations that become real and it's like at at what point does cyclops need to like step in and help his brother out here because i know that he went to xavier but that's like the worst possible way to help any of your brothers cyclops (laughs) I'm wondering why Krakoa does the pit instead of just like killing characters and then keeping them in the resurrection queue indefinitely. I mean, they did do that. They they do kind of do that. You know, they've done that with people that they don't like to push them back to the back of the queue, not only Destiny, but later characters as well. But Mm -hmm. I think that's seen as like make it's it's a violation of the law of make more mutants. You know, it's like a direct Mm -hmm. violation of Krakoa's law to do that. Emma does it to her (laughs) sister. Emma does it to her sisters, but Emma is if you have a power powerful mutant who can literally destroy like half the population if not more i'm sorry but you 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 got to think about your population especially when they are an unstable narcissistic meg mega you know what i mean (laughs) like like dictator runs through his entire mindset he's got a dictator boner and yeah and and like anybody who even says no to him is at risk of being killed he's a very oh god he's a really really toxic white man but the difference between someone like him versus someone like legion is that Mm -hmm. legion is very very powerful as well but he Mm -hmm. can bring himself back and and we have an opportunity here yeah we have an opportunity here to box vulcan and i'm hoping i mean like i think that would be the smart thing to do but story-wise obviously that's not the great conflict thing to do mm-hmm. right but i wonder if krakoa will try to resurrect vulcan with a few modifications that they've made on other people when they hey among the energy manipulating reality warping children of like you know important mutant families uh how crazy is it that out of like legion proteus and vulcan like proteus is the really well-adjusted right proteus yeah. is like totally living his best life completely normal yeah. Mutant needs taken care of. No need to be a killer. There's absolutely, yeah. it's perfect. It's a model citizen. And then like, oh, Vulcan's heaven. just like, my dad didn't like me. My brothers don't love me. I don't, nobody loves me. I never died. <laughs> and, then, uh, and even Legion is still extremely conflicted about what he's doing and his place there and his future mm-hmm. on Krakoa. But at least yeah. he's conflicted. He doesn't want to grab power. Yeah. He's had yep. power offered to him a number of times. And he's like, you know, as lovely as that sounds, I don't yeah. think that would be 
a very good idea for me because I have a history of becoming unstable. And if I had this power, a lot of people could end up getting hurt. Like mm. he's, he's very self-aware of his mental illness and how it affects him. Whereas Vulcan just leans into it because he is so fucking entitled. You know, I'm the strongest. I, you know, might makes right. I should be the emperor of everything. And it's like, no, dude, you are angry and unstable and far too powerful and you use that to hurt people yeah and he Vulcan seemingly has no awareness of how to get better or what um, a good mental state looks yeah. like right because to yeah. him getting better is becoming the dictator of the Shi'ar again and having everybody mm-hmm. respect him like that's what he thinks is going to be like the end goal of his healing and rehabilitation process and that's mm-hmm. that's, that's got to change if he wants to stay on Arako or Krakoa I mean he can't he's not even welcome in the summer house or Krakoa anymore right. so it's like yeah. unless this is destined to end in tragedy and unless any of his family actually wants to step in and do the work to really help him out they have to convince him that that's that's not gonna happen and that's not the natural end path mm-hmm. yeah well i i blame some of that on brand though i also think some of the reason that vulcan may have eat, that the reason they would resurrect him and the reason they have in the past is because one of krakoa's most precious resources is omega level mutants and unfortunately he's an omega level mutant so they've got to keep bringing him back but they, they did. have plenty of others i know and and charles has threatened to not bring back his son who's an omega level mutant so yeah, I don't but know. he can't stop that anymore yeah <laughs> and that was just charles everybody else would yeah. have disagreed with him i'm sure i just yeah. love oh god yeah i don't want to get off topic but i just love how charles is such a bad dad and how people are really good at portraying him as such a bad dad mm-hmm. he's, he's such a bad dad like the worst awful because well, yeah. when you know better you do better but magneto is a great dad in this issue at least <laughs> in this issue at least no that's that's still not good dad he killed the he killed the evil vile genetic manipulation dictator for all of Araco. that's like good dad moves right no no yeah, but was like, it a, was it a needed thing absolutely was it a good dad thing no no no. I'm hearing the words that came out of my mouth before. I'm thinking about everything I know about Lorna and Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch and Anya and any other random children's problem. Yeah. But, yeah. but he does love his children and he is still obviously grieving for Anya. Yeah. He loves Anya. Let's just say that. Yeah. He loves Anya. He definitely o- loves often Anya. Often loves the Scarlet Witch. Sometimes remember that Pater still exists because Storm's not so much resting bitch face, but the I am going to punch your teeth down your head. Throat at my earliest convenience face. <gasps> so good. And mm-hmm. Abigail Brand would absolutely deserve it. Uh, she would. I don't think I don't think anybody would be upset to see that. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Maybe Hank McCoy, I'm... but I think we would all like to see Hank McCoy lose his teeth too. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, yeah. But it's it's that whole line of but even so, once he's put the most hated mutant on Araco down like a dog, I imagine he'll be royalty here too. So Someone has to be, after all. I'm like, oh, bitch, you, yeah. you, you, you walk in a fine line of getting a very much electrified boot up your ass. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I, I gotta ask everybody else. Like, so who is like out of this lineup assembled so far? Who's your favorite character that they're presenting that Al Ewing is presenting to us? And who's the character you never thought you'd love but you love so much? I'll, I'll start obviously. Love Storm up down. Mm. This is. A really amazing arc for Storm. I love the costume. You, there's some things, Raven. 
I would love changed about it, but overall, I love the look. And the character who I never thought I would love, but I'm just in love with, is the Fisher King. Like, who is this dude? And I know we need to know more about him, because, you know, maybe there's some really problematic stuff in his character history's past. But I just love this dude. He's just, like, this baseline human, or a minty, and he's just rocking it out with some Omega-level mutants. Yeah, I, I like the Fisher King a lot. I, I'm hoping that we can see some crossover with the King Arthur stuff, just based on his name. But Magneto is my favorite character in the series, obviously. He's already my favorite character. He's fucking good. He's getting a lot of time to do things that are troubled and tragic and sad. I love that he's sitting in the seat of loss. It's like the most perfect mm-hmm. possible political position for Magneto himself. The character I'm like loving more than I ever thought I would is definitely Thunderbird. I'm hoping he sticks around in the series. It's just amazing. I want to see him more and more. My favorite character in this book so far is Magneto. I love the side of him that we're seeing, this range of emotions that we get to see. I really, really am enjoying his interactions with Beto because I really like the throwback to that era of New Mutants when he was the headmaster. I miss them together. Yeah, it's a good vibe. It gives me something that I didn't realize I was nostalgic for. Honestly, seeing Gabriel Vulcan in this book and getting his story told, I'm really excited to see what's going on there. I have not liked most of his story beats so far, to be completely honest honest but i have always thought that it was just a matter of like right time right place for that to like happen i'm enjoying what's happening with him right now I, i've been enjoying like this this mystery of him in the Krakoan era and i'm excited to see just how messed up he is and I, I'm, I'm really interested to see where ewing wants to take him I, for once, cannot pick a favorite character. Well, because there's so much lovely nuance that is coming to the forefront and so much thought being put into each character, even if they are characters who have smaller roles, like uh, Korra of the Burning Heart, who was working for Brand, and, you know, like, Aurora sits down and, like, has a talk with her, like, oh, hey, you're, you're here. And she's like, yeah, I'm here at everyone that Tarn is, because... My power is only to mimic other people's powers, so I got to do my own thing, but I want to be here when this guy dies. <laughs> There's nuance to the Iraqi characters. There's nuance to characters that we've just brought back more recently, like Thunderbird. Whether the role is big or small, there's a lot of thought put into these characters and how they interact with each other. And I love the fact that we also have so many exceedingly powerful, like Omega level mutants together, but they don't don't all rely strictly on their powers to get their point across or to get to the end of their goals. They use subterfuge, intrigue, diplomacy, manipulation. Like I actually enjoy that they are people who have more than one way to go about doing what they want to do. So I think just the overall book has really very quickly become one of my favorites. Looking at everything from the art, which is beautiful, to the really complex story the really complex culture that we're seeing from the Iraqi to just some of the really funny moments where like even when Iska and Beto first you know meet up she's like ah you're Aurora's bartender friend (laughs) she's like I hear you always win at everything they said love is a battlefield so many great moments in there I really can't see like myself not finding this is one of my favorite books out at the moment like it's really hard to Mm -hmm. say like what favorite is because there's so many really high quality books between like this and Immortal X-Men and even New Mutants, Moon Knight out there. Like it's hard for me to say what my favorite book overall is, but it's 
it's definitely in that running for it. Yeah, this right. is going to be, X-Men Red is going to be a book that we look back on with like awe and reverence, I think, already. Like, it's one of those books that I'm going to be looking back on and being like, man, remember how good X-Men Red was? I know it's really early on to say, but it does feel like that. We're in an era of X titles that is going to be looked back on very kindly. And and we're I think we're going to see like a lot of really good long from a lot of these titles and stories. You know, today we say a not-so-tearful goodbye to Tarn. Is anybody sad to see him go? I know for one, I am not. I love the arc that he's had throughout from his first introduction. I mean, he's basically right, the Arakai Mr. Sinister, you know? Yeah, he really is. He really, really, really I is. am not sad to see him die. It's wonderful mm. to see die. But I think mm. he'll be back, and I'll be excited to read him then, too. Because, I mean, Sinister was still making all those Sinistarn clones. Oh no! Yep. If you tell me that you think that every single one of those is destroyed and dead, I don't believe hmm. it. Well, just what what fun would it be if this was the last time we saw Tarn? Right? Oh, <laughs> it would be less fun. I mean, I think we need really... to see Vulcan folded into a Rubik's Cube more often. <laughs> I think it's really cool the way Tarn's story has unfolded over the course of different X-Books. Like, who he is as a character has been slowly revealed, not in one particular story, but in many stories. And it's just a neat way of getting to know a character. And it, it really, once again, illustrates how tightly written this era of X-Books is and how, how well the whole office seems to be working together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that, that's a character who's definitely appeared through multiple books, but has always been the same unlovable bad guy that you want to hate. I don't know. I love his face tentacles. I do love the face tentacles. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I've never been so happy to see Tarn kick somebody's asses when he kicked Vulcan's ass. Yeah, that was yeah awesome. there's always a bigger asshole out there whose ass you want to see kicked. And, and Tarn was the big asshole who kicked the ass of the bigger asshole. We got to see two assholes kicked today it was amazing <laughs> today is not a good day for assholes <laughs> yeah i like that this is a book that can balance its serious political discourse with like a line like face tentacles <laughs> <laughs> Ewing has a really great sense of, of balance and comedic timing. Yes, he does. Like, you were the emperor of bird people and their hollow bones. I'm like, oh, bitch, that's not right. And then he just like snaps his fucking arm like a twig. I'm like, oh, no. It was like a Deadpool moment. Remember Deadpool 1 where he punches Colossus and just breaks his arm and he's got like these little T-Rex hands? That's what I thought. I laughed so hard. So inappropriately hard at that. I do love the panel where he's getting killed and Aurora is like, oh my Damn, god. bitch. <laughs> and Brand, yep. Yes. <laughs> All according to plan. Pretty much. And I, I just love how Cora just like, damn it, he's not gonna die. The facial expressions are so brilliant. And I mean, those can be so hard to do, especially when you have so much intricate emotion and so many close-up shots. But like the artist here just did an absolutely amazing and wonderful job. Tart doesn't even have a very human looking face for expression, but you can see the panic on it. 
mm-hmm. when yeah. he's about to get his head crushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the the yeah. art, oh, amazing. That is, yeah, not a human face at all. He has no nose, but just the eyes are just so panicked. It is mm-hmm. amazing. It was well done, and I can't wait to see the next one, and I hope it goes on for many a year. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, even Aura Serrata looks shocked in that last panel, and that's that that right. just in here with no explanation. They're like, you've read Legion, right? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> They're like, the whole world is intertwined, fellas. It's okay. We're gonna do it. I, I do have to say, Laura Serrata looks insanely shocked, which is amazing because she she's is just, just an eyeball. eyeball. Yeah. yeah. Right? Right? It's it's that, what the f*** just happened yeah. there? Oh. It's in that strong pupil directed right towards the fallen tarn. It's a really, it's subtle, but it's very well done. And then Magneto's eyes are glowing in this panel too. Just yeah. a little bit. Two little white dots in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. This is great I'm end page. Yeah. Normally, normally I don't go for Magneto. Like he's, he's a, you know, decent looking and everything. Like no shade. Literally no shade. For some reason after he crushed Tarn's head, I'm just like, mm, damn it. He's kind of hot. Oh no, no, <laughs> no. Don't don't make bad decisions. Don't make bad decisions. <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here again. I love when we get to talk Wolverine because one of the things that it leads to is inevitably a roundtable discussion of what's going on on the X-Line as a whole. And I think that's a virtue of Wolverine being so connected with the rest of the line. And we hope you guys enjoy those connections here in this coverage of Wolverine. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new episode of X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming, Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snickton around the interwebs at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram posting really stupid Arrested Development X-Men mashup memes at XNateXGrayS. Hello everyone. If you want to follow me over on Twitter and Instagram liking TK's very dumb Arrested Development X-Men crossover stuff, you can follow me at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And we are here today to talk about, I think, for lack of a better way to put it, the X book that has, like, I guess the most technical star power, but also in many ways, maybe the least to do with what's going on in Krakoa. We're here to discuss Wolverine number, I don't know, Deadpool's in it, so it's it's got some weird coding on the bottom, but I'm pretty sure it's Wolverine number 22, and it's written by Benjamin Percy. We've got Adam Kubert on art. Such a relief to see, like, Adam Kubert on a book all the time. It just makes my heart happy. We have Frank Martin killing it over on colors with VC's Corey Pettit lettering the fuck out of it. Tom Muller and Jay Bowen are still credited with the incredible design of Wolverine, and I just want to go out of my way to say that there is definitely a production element to this book, especially with the Deadpool treatment of the subject matter. So, you know, whoever's doing the production here, which looks to be VC's Corey Pettit in a further down credit, really beautiful job. It all looks terrific. But, you know, for all the Wolverine and Deadpool of it, we still got some Maverick going on. Where's where's everybody's Maverick meter? Is that like a thing for people? Did we get do the promise of the Maverick goodness that we always expected? 
I don't think that's a promise that can ever be fully fulfilled. Maverick is one of those characters for me that like if he comes back every 10 years or something, it's like, oh, hey, nice deep pull. But like I wasn't, you know, pre-ordering a a Maverick solo series. I'm not like super geared up for like month to month Maverick. So I'll be honest. I don't know who Maverick is. I'm not sure if Wolverine knows her with the way that they act. But I was like, everyone's trying to tell me they all know this character, but I don't know who this is. And they keep acting like they're this big old deal. And it's like, I've never heard this character mentioned wants to ever anywhere and now they're here i feel like a lot of the 90s like hype characters like make everything more extreme characters fall into that category where a lot of us were kids at the time and so have kind of a fond memory of those characters but they disappear really quickly because they are not good characters and they don't make long-standing contributions and people forget about them and new people how dare you attack (laughs) my 90s how dare you i mean i love it don't don't get me wrong. I would dish out four ninety nine a month for a monthly Maggot series, a Marrow series. I would take an Adam X the Extreme oh, series. Like, how dare you? Those are the hits, though. I'm talking about, like, Maverick, Cyber, everybody in Cable's six-pack. Like, these are characters that I think are there. hilarious and love to see. But, like, they're ridiculous. And every once in a while, somebody will be like, GW Bridge just found out that Cable's in Madripoor. And everybody is like, what the fuck? The, the GW Bridge is a sentient thing? And then you have to be like, no, it's actually a guy and that's his name and nobody knows why. I feel like if we got a giant size X-Men one shot of Grizzly, it wouldn't be the worst giant size X-Men one shot we've gotten though. You can think about what you just said to me for like five minutes. Grizzly. Okay, fine. But I'm going to raise the stakes and I'm going to make it even dumber because this isn't even my favorite Maverick. I like Bolt, the other Maverick, Chris Bradley, who's the little kid who can't stop exploding in X-Men 8. Un- I'm sorry, in X-Men Unlimited 8. And then he shows back up in X-Men Unlimited 15 and then he just kind of joins Maverick and then later on he becomes the superhero Bolt in a pretty short term Jay Farber iteration of the New Warriors and then he would go on to appear in Frank Thierry's Weapon X a title that I am uh, pretty fond of and then would go on to make one final appearance in one of the Necrotia stories as a resurrected mutant but you know I think Bolt is such a great character and could have really benefited from getting Krakoa. Listen, it's still possible. Well, let's make it happen. Do it. So, all right, we have the most Deadpool in this book that we've had in X-Men in a really long time. It's not that I think the X-Men gave up on Deadpool, but something that happens from time to time is, and he shall from time to time, is that you see a side feature become so fucking big, they get their own thing. And, you know, certain legendary ones I can think of are like, you know, Jon Stewart being so successful in the pages of Green Lantern, they gave him Mosaic. And and like, you know, Venom now needing his own fucking office, which I'm making a big gesture. So I'm curious about how you guys feel about the reintegration of Deadpool into the X-Men. And if you really think there's room for the Merc with a mouth in the team with too many mutes. I mean, we all knew it was going to happen. The X-Men are primed for taking the big stage in other media. Deadpool was the most successful thing to come out of the Fox X-Men franchise. People 
been clamoring for more Deadpool content on screen and in comics and are just waiting with bated breath to see what happens with the X-Men. And there is a degree to which these two things are inextricably linked. I think the past decade and a half of kind of keeping them separate has almost felt weirder than now breaking that streak and putting Deadpool much more in context with the mutants. But it's definitely an adjustment period. Things have changed a lot and this book has some work to do to really convince me that Deadpool has a long-term place among Krakoan culture. Although I think, I really do think it's possible. So Wade is a very fascinating character, to me at least, in terms of his popularity in and out of comics, in other media, what they did with this character and how they're trying to translate him continually into the more modern era and into this kind of life, as, as he puts it, the uh, the bastard prince of Krakoa and I personally do feel that there is a specific place for him because I, while the X-Men aren't short of plenty of characters who match his wit and have their own funny one-liners, I don't know if anybody specifically does what Deadpool does besides Deadpool. And in that sense, there's always a niche and there's always a place to put him kind of wherever you want. I do hope that there isn't so much arguments of should Wade be allowed or not? More so, do we want him here? I think that's the better question. You know, we saw way back in the first Hellfire Gala him trying to get into the party and break in and X-Force just kind of being like, no, Wade, stop, go home, you're drunk. I want to see more Wade on Krakoa. I do think, ultimately, I do think there's a role for him. I do think there's a spot. So reading this, especially with it being a uh, Wade and Logan story, it reminds me of, I think, what is probably the best one that we've had from them. The one that Jerry Duggan did where Wade went and he got Logan. Logan and Steve Rogers come back with him. I want to say it's like some knock on like the good, the bad and the ugly. I think probably easily the best Wolverine and Deadpool story that we've ever been given. And he works better in real stories or with real characters when he has to be a little more serious. Because if you bring too much of his slaps, it it brings down like they're going to average each other out and it's going to bring story just like a little bit away from what you need your real, you know, in canon ongoing Wolverine Krakoa story to be. I really liked Kelly Thompson's first Deadpool that she gave us. I was all right with what Percy gave us for the Hellfire Gala, but this definitely feels not like something the story asked for and not like something the readers asked for. This just feels like something Percy really wanted to do. And so, no, shut up. You're all going to read it. It's one of my favorite things to discuss is generational iteration of a character that really is a central focus of the way comics work. Think about the year Superman came out. So think about the years that influenced the guys who created him and think about then when they must have been born and now project that across Superman's entire existence. Now do that for every character in the entirety of the DC and Marvel universes and now intermingle their experiences across line-wide crossovers and two-part and appearances and anthology titles. And what you wind up with is no one way to look at any character, almost no matter how few appearances they have. And when you're looking at a character like Deadpool, who has now been around since like 1989, which is 
a fair amount of Deadpool to source from. You find yourself really in a position where you can pick and choose your Deadpool. I'm perhaps glad that I'm not reminded of Remender's Deadpool. That would make me really sad. So the fact that it's maybe not my Deadpool isn't a huge thing. I'm just relieved it's not a Deadpool I specifically don't care for. I find this little danger robot child baby monster horrifying, but I think I love it like a baby. And, you know, any opportunity to do a quick run past a Busby Berkeley's Footlight Parade style Vegas showstopper in eight panel grid on a two page spread by an industry legend is worth it. But um, this little fucker's creepy. So I covered the last issue of X-Force and Wolverine where we talked about this. I really regret not bringing up in our discussion of what this thing might be the fact that danger is obviously too small to fit in a suitcase and that has to be part of what's going on here. So closing out that issue, I really went into this being like, well, it's like a danger head and then you got to do something with like maybe they have to hook it into a machine and then I was like, right, but then why would they include feet and hands? There's something more going on here and I really couldn't stop thinking about it and for some reason horrifying toddler danger did not spring into my mind as an obvious solution to the clues that were being laid in front of me. So I was pretty tickled by this as a setup for things going forward. I love the idea that maybe this is like literally Danger's baby and that's like part of this is that she's trying to make sure that her kids are safe. That's always a classic X-Men thing. We had a bunch of that with Kanan earlier in the uh, Krakoa era so I don't really actually like those women must save their baby runs but this one could be pretty funny. The level of Hugh the Benny Hill music while they chase this monster around is absolutely (laughs) hilarious. Percy's Deadpool humor is not always what I want but I think it is expansive enough that there's something in it that I can always enjoy even if the core of it is not quite how I see my Deadpool and the fact that this can really mix some serious important Krakoan plot points with some Deadpool juvenile humor and then give us a moment like this that is just pure like vaudeville slapstick stupid and make them all plausibly work together in a way that I don't think it's going to dilute any significant plot points for like Rakoan diplomacy that come out of I don't mind this. I do like Danger being introduced as a villain, villainess, if you will. I think there's probably some great stories that can you can utilize her for whatever, she, whether she's friend, foe, ally to Kakoa. This story is treading a little too close to Hellions for me, where Nanny kind of had a secret robot baby that was super destructive and basically a weapon, and they both kind of look the same too. One was just like an emerald green. This one is just, you know, metallic-like danger. This is kind of treading on the Hellion's toes a little bit in terms of like this, you know, robotic baby ready to shoot and kill people. Ha ha. But this one's super smart. I did enjoy the chase sequence. You can't really go wrong with a chase sequence, especially if it's somewhere really random. Like they're on stage for a magic show and then the magic show is still going because the show must go on. I know that applies to more Broadway and other kinds of performances, but even in a magic show, you've got to keep going. Uh, I do wonder where exactly this is still going because I'm still quite not sure what the purpose of this mini Danger Baby is for. Like, did Danger make this? Did somebody else make this? What's going on? I don't know, but I do find it funny. And to what you were talking about, TK, Deadpool is a very interesting character because my hot take, one of the harder characters to write properly, continuously, people who are fans of Deadpool and people who consume Deadpool comics have an expectation that Wade 
is witty and funny and sarcastic. And I do think that's very challenging to not only having to balance your comedy and your serious writing, but to continuously be funny over and over again for how many issues your run is going for. Yeah, it's a good point. I think that goes back to what I was saying about Deadpool in a story like this is the need to make him feel funny throughout it can detract from the gravity of the actual story if we're not just doing that in a Deadpool. I think that, you know, when Deadpool kind of plays in other people's sandboxes, you need to get tempered or can't just be the full on wacky slapstick Looney Tune character. So help me out. I've been busy and scattered. First question, the chibi danger baby with a Cerebro helmet is different from the sentient Cerebro helmet in Percy's other book? Presumably yes, although, you know, they, those could dovetail. But who could ever really be sure? So we're not sure if there's two unrelated like sentient Cerebro helmets in his both of his stories or if they're related. He might really want to hammer home the idea that these are a really bad idea. Yeah, it's like, you know, be careful with the headwear statements you make. And then second question, it's been a minute. I did not pull back and reflip through my giant size Nightcrawler before this, but wasn't there some funky shit going on at the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters last time we were there? Yeah, and it was masterminding. Well, and the, it was Sidri. And Sidri. Oh, yeah. It was Warlocky. I will be very surprised if all of those things link up, but it's definitely possible. I feel like I remember it had one of those things where like as they were walking off, there was still some shit going around behind them in the mansion. There's a lot of uncertainty about so many of the X-Men's outlying bases. One of the things that I thought the Krakoan Age might herald was a great state of, you know, like vaunted, wonderful transport. Like to me, I just figured that perhaps they would like set up at the mansion and set up in the outback and set up at the lighthouse and set up on Muir Island and, you know, have an undersea base and set up on Asteroid M. I don't care. Just reclaim it all. Pick a tunnel and just more lock it. I don't know. But it feels as though we are not as interested in resettling old stomping grounds as we are in using them as a fertile space to create story conflict. Like there's there's the shop aspect too that when you you know where have we seen the Xavier Mansion where are we seeing these some of these old points are only coming up when we have long term veteran classic artists who have like drawn the fuck out of them a bunch of times and it's a lot easier than learning new backgrounds to draw. Yes, that is such a great perspective. It's something that we see a lot in what we might refer to as the shorthand of a book where there's issues where it maybe makes sense that. It feels like there's a lot, you know, going on in that issue because it's the same three characters in the same four locations. And the artist is able to get a really good pattern on it instead of having to constantly come up with new locations and visually design them. So, yeah, you know, relying on the old classics, I do get it. So to talk about this issue for a minute, I am really blown away by the daringness in some of the art choices. Something that I've been really thinking about is how for all that X-Men is doing to tighten up continuity, X-Men is becoming, once again, really an inaccessible lockbox. And I really believe that because we're heading back into prelude to the beginnings, to the opening salvo of the first battle of the... And it's like, fuck, just give me the fucking event, you know? And I understand that there are significant factors that are changing the capacity of the company's ability to deliver material in a timely manner. But 
but I am troubled by the inability for me to be like, oh, just grab that book. You'll totally understand what's going on. And I do a little bit contrast it with DC, who in some ways, there are some books that are so continuity heavy, I won't even approach. But there are books that are really thriving on this, you know, anybody can do any story kind of feel. It's something that Grant Morrison definitely plays with best. So, you know, it's hard not to think about the ways in which New X-Men, at its best, set a tone for other books to follow. And I think that's what John Hickman did with Powers and House. But shortly thereafter, we really lost the core focus of a singular identity for the title that everything could reverberate out of. I know that what I'm implying is that perhaps the X-Men benefit from a hierarchy or, you know, a, a clear this is the lead writer. But, you know, when I think about how I found this book daring in its art, and I think about how I find perhaps, you know, Grant Morrison and Liam Sharp on Lantern, you know, daring. It really is a situation where Wolverine isn't under-delivering. It's that the X-Men has become that thing that it's not supposed to be anymore again. And Wolverine is showing the signs of wear and tear the hardest. I think I think we kind of maybe have to give up on the idea that it can be anything else. Like, that we're not just always going to get lost in continuity heaviness. And find better ways to get people locked in and embracing the continuity of Venus because the fact of the matter is we all pick up X books at some point in our lives very rarely especially those of us who are our age um, you know who are mid 30 you know 40s to like 25 you, you didn't necessarily when you were picking them up have as much access to back issues and you figure it out you cobble it together these kids today with their wikis and their, yeah, their 100% iPhones don't know what it's like trying to figure out what the fuck's going on when you find uncanny x-men 247 in a box and you don't know why the fuck they're in australia or who some of these people are or or who the who the girl hiding in the walls is and then the trading card you have from the toy doesn't agree with the book they get yeah i mean you yes you can go online and figure some of this stuff out but also i mean this is what you get when you let jonathan hickman build something for you this is what hickman world building is go try and read the 31st issue in any of the things that he's done like go find his 31st issue of the fantastic four run go find the 31st issue of his avengers new avengers infinity run like jump in somewhere in the middle and tell me if like it makes sense to a new reader that's a sacrifice for building high stakes and you know having really good storytelling i mean i'd say we see this in animated shows as well you know i think of a show like she-ra that was so accessible in its first two seasons but once you start getting into like season three or four like it's just serialized like it's just one long running thing and like tell me that like if you watch up season three episode seven like that's not good for a new person they have to go back for us to get really good stories with stakes like at some point you got to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to go back to at least year, the most recent jumping on point. The husband and I are rewatching Stargate and we finally made the jump to the sci-fi years and the Jonas Quinn years. And it is so unfucking real how much every episode has like six characters that you need to remember from season two and season three and season one. And it's fun and it can be really engaging, but you know, you are correct. I really see the accuracy of everybody's point. My concern is when it 
goes from Easter eggs and things that enhance the experience to required core elements to make the story function that, you know, we're all begging for editor's boxes to come back. And that makes me wonder. <laughs> I had to ask myself, and just like that, you know, is it, is, are we the editor's boxes or the editor's boxes controlling us? You know, it's all very carry. But yeah, I, I really do hear what you guys are saying. I just feel like Wolverine is definitely a book that won't make sense outside of its era ever again, which is true of Wolverine all the fucking time. But like, I think if you take a book, like even Legion of X, which has just started and is starting on a pretty basic concept, you kind of do have to have read Way of X and the Onslaught one shot, which those are recent. Sure, that's fine. But to really get the most out of what's going on with David and his brief encounters with his father, it's good to have read a bunch of Legion stuff. And like you're talking about like the story really won't function without this knowledge. And we're maybe not at that point in something like Legion of X, but it is pretty like you really can't even start a Legion of X or a Knights of X and say it's from scratch and like pick it up with number one and expect that most people can do that and get the kind of fulfillment from the story that would make you want to pick up a comic book in the first place. Like technically you can get through and understand everything, but at a certain point, this medium is about the serial soap operatic quality in which you do have to have been collecting. Or again, like I still say, go through the trial by fire of having absolutely no idea and having to figure it out. I even more so now that you can collect everything, all the knowledge through like wikis and message boards and various fandom outlets, like have the experience. I don't see any other way that writers can get around this at this point. This could turn into a really off topic tangent, but there is a functional problem as well. I just, I don't see any way we ever move around it. I'm a little appreciative that, you know, we brought this up in focus to, you know, remind me that we have some books that are so deeply immersed in what was built and the trajectory off of Hox Pox that a new reader would have no fucking clue what the hell is going on if they just picked up X-Men Red 3 and it was the first X-Men book they've read by. We have some of that with Immortal. We have some of that with Knights and Legion as well. Like some of these are so deeply entrenched at this point in the lore of the Krakoan era that it kind of, if anything, it makes it weird that we're having this conversation on this book. Because if I was to look up and down the line and say which book should then be focused to be the most accessible gateway drug into Krakoa for outside readers to pick up and not have to understand what's going on, it would be the Wolverine solo book. Fascinating. Okay. And you know, okay. Okay. For me, you know, if we're starting from like the beginning of the arc, you know, if we're starting it from Wolverine 20 and we can give anybody an entry point, I think your point stands with X-Men Red number one, just as clearly as it stands with X-Men Red number three in regard to Wolverine 20 being as strong an entry point as Wolverine 22. I think you are right that there are titles that certainly have a greater sense of accessibility. I think perhaps I, I feel like Wolverine most benefits from something else doing all of the tonal work for it. I don't know. It's I'm really appreciative of this conversation. Jonah, as somebody who is the newest to active reading, you know, just to remind audiences, I've been reading actively on and off since I'm literally like 10 years old collecting the Alan Davis run that predated Morrison. You know, I know Josh and TK, you guys have collected since earlier in your lives as well. And I'd you'd love for you guys to give those issues as well. You know, but Jonah, you also only started collecting actively with House and Powers. 
That is correct. So how is this translation working for you? That's a fascinating question. And it's something that I keep in my mind through everything we read. And, you know, I try to read pretty much everything. Maybe not when it just comes out, but I do try to find some time to just keep up with everything. So I'm, you know, knowledgeable and I can do all this stuff. But it's a fascinating question that I keep in my mind of, all right, if I started today, where should I start? And, you know, I I think it's a very daunting task to ask someone, well, you kind of have to read it all. And that that might scare some people. So I, I try to think about, okay, if you're just thinking about the tentpoles and like, say, for example, there have been some TV shows where I wanted to watch and try to catch up for our current season, but I do know that it like, they had like plenty of history already. I'm like, hmm, how do I do this? So I just skip episodes that aren't as important, whether they're filler or a little more fluffy than they need to be. You can kind of skip what's not exactly needed in order to give you the biggest, the best gist so you can start reading currently. And then you can always go back and read stuff later. It's not like you can't go back and read things. I did that on my rewatch of Highlander last year. I'm doing that with this show called The News. Please don't spoil anything for me, but I just got to this guy, Nixon, and I don't know, but I don't trust his face. Uh, (laughs) Wolverine being a good jumping on point for people is a fascinating take and maybe truth to it because if you kind of want to know what's specifically going on with Kakoa, Wolverine is usually the person there. So it does actually make sense that if you want to like try to dive into more current runs and say, okay, what are the X-Men actually kind of doing? Wolverine is a great starting point, even if you're not the biggest Wolverine fan, only because you will kind of get the the Wolverine version of things but tends to be the no nonsense no nonsense no bullshit version of things because he doesn't take anybody's bullshit except for his kids a mix between sword and x-men red are probably very vital because the x-men expanding into the space and staying there i think is a really big point in x history that we will be seeing for a very very long time the x-men aren't new to space but they're new to inhabiting it in this kind of way so i've been collecting since around X-Men 300. I believe I was like six or seven years old when I started. For one thing, I'm, I was too young. Like I lacked the reading comprehension on a lot of stuff. But then on top of that, like just no resources, barely any internet, was really not supposed to be using Usenet chats to find that stuff because that was just like early predator problems over there. But so much of my knowledge was just whatever I could cobble together. And it took me literally decades to be disabused of some incredibly stupid notions that I had just developed as an eight-year-old trying to understand what was happening. And I feel like, you know, I still love every book that I've read and had a good experience trying to figure everything out. I think it's possible to do it. I think Wolverine is always going to be a place that we look to as sort of setting a tone and setting a trend and being an onboarding point for people. And I think Percy is sort of a successor to Hickman in terms of being one of the bigger movers and shakers about larger Krakoan stories makes a lot of sense. I think this story feels really quiet and complicated and specific for how big a thing Deadpool showing up to team up with Wolverine in this completely new era of X-Men that is surely to influence the era that we see broadly as they start to become more popular in like mainstream culture. It's a lot to take in and I 
think at the end of the day, even if this plot is difficult for new readers to comprehend all the elements that are coming together beforehand, that may not be as important as just seeing what happens on screen. So when I was saying that Wolverine would be your gateway drug access point, the main reason is, is because Wolverine's not on the Quiet Council. He's not on like baking. I mean, he's on X-Force, but the Wolverine solo ideally would allow Wolverine to get away from Krakoa. You know, it's Wolverine kind of stopping, touching base and checking in, but you're having these stories outside of Krakoa where he's, you know, doing his Wolverine shit. And I think that's what makes it more a Wolverine solo is is typically less integral to the ongoing X stories. I mean, even if we think of all the previous Wolverine solos, you know, and when Wolverine comes and ties back in, like he's off in Japan or he's off in the Savage Land or he's off in Madripoor or he's off in and then he like comes back for the crossover. And, you know, there's a long history of the Wolverine solo book kind of being its own thing and then coming back as needed, which is why I would say it would make that access point for other people. I do think that Percy, Percy has shown outside of the X office a lot of skill in kind of integrating and, and understanding, you know, the, the long multiple viewpoints of IPs and making them accessible. My first Percy readings and my introduction to him was on his Green Arrow run, where he was tasked with taking the new 52 Green Arrow that was, you know, basically just retconned to be from the show Arrow and kind of rapidly or quickly just like making him a little older in each issue for a little while until he started to look like classic Ollie and bringing, you know, Dinah and other characters back and kind of blending it so that way people who came on at New 52 wouldn't feel abandoned. But, you know, the old readers who had an idea of this character could feel like it was accessible again. And he did a fantastic job with that. My kids love Ben Percy because they think that his three arcs on Teen Titans over with DC are like the best Teen Titans comics that we have. We keep buying more Teen Titans trades for them and they have found none that they love and will reread as much as those three trades they did. So, I mean, bang up for new audience, new generation. For me, where I come from, I actually have a copy of my first ever comic book here. First ever comic book, which is beaten to shit, is Batman 465 from July of 1991. It was randomly purchased at a gas station for me by my father and then thrown into my lap in the car. Um, he had no idea what the fuck he was starting. Uh, I My first X-Men comic I've talked about many times on here is Uncanny X-Men 301, which I love today and is a great issue. But good lord, as a starter X-Men issue, in June of 1993, when the collective consciousness basis of the X-Men is the 92 animated series that your uncanny issue focuses entirely around Forge and Mystique and is basically a follow-up to things that happened to 50, 60 issues earlier in the late Claremont run it is introducing the, God, what were they called? The group of random-ass villains who were all competing in earning points to, by upstarts, killing upstarts. mutants. Yeah, it was upstarts. who got to unmute first, motherfucker. <laughs> by introducing us to Sierra Blaze and Fitzroy and, and Shinobi and all the upstarts, like, man, what up? The Games Master. Like, yeah, like there's there's some shit that even Wikipedia can't help me understand about that today. Like, God bless, you know, nine-year-old me in 1993 for, you know, still enjoying it and, and coming back for 302 and moving forward. And so on that exact point, though, like I, I need to follow up with one of the things that often happens with writers where they're like, I'm I am positive I made that clear, you know, 20 years later is if you know how to get somewhere, the map doesn't seem 
seem that necessary. But if you've never gone there before, you really need to know the roads. And some people sometimes are lucky enough to intuit their way from point A to point B. But for many of us, we really do need that clear map drawn. And so while so many of the greats who had a chance to work on those wild stories about the upstarts and, you know, the externals can frequently tell you where they put this and that seed and how they saw it playing out, what makes it more complex for us as the readers is we lack that forethought in advance. And without that same forethought on Wolverine, I wonder, where do you guys think this story may go or what do you hope to see? Number one, I want to see more of that beautiful size disparity between Deadpool and Wolverine. That is correct. They should be a good eight inches different in height. Number two, that ass. Logan, you should stand with your back to me all the time. And I want to see an investigation of the possibility of turning the school into something useful, a satellite location for the Treehouse X-Men, and yet also a vantage point, like a Krakoan way station, a train station for for Krakoa into New York. That's something that the mansion could certainly serve as. And I would love to see Wolverine represent that opportunity as the mutant who is most expected to cross that gateway 17 times a day. So what do you guys hope to see in the future of Wolverine as the title continues what can only be assumed to be a pretty unquestionable run? No one's going to cancel Wolverine tomorrow. I would love a three-issue story involving him being involved in his kids' lives, and I want there to be a tea party. Jonathan will be there. I just want to see Logan interact with his kids more. I think that was partially one of my favorite parts over in Death Slash Lives of Wolverine, but I like to see more of it. I like when we get to see Logan be a dad. If you look across all the stories of this current Wolverine run, starting from the very beginning up until now, they're all very bloody. They're all very gory. They're all very, you know, hard-ass, like, action movie, and that's fine. Wolverine does great there and people buy that and eat that crap up because it's good. And I'm not saying that it's not good. Put him in a put him in a slow story. Put it put him in a slice of life. Let's get some more action with Laura, Dokken, and Gabby. And Jonathan. That's exactly what I was gonna say. I want Wolverine family. I want Wolverine and all the kids. Screw the kids. Give me L C D and Albert. I like a lot of this pieces of it. You know, I really appreciate the lack of Jonathan erasure. But you know what? Let's let's make L C D one of the kids. She's like cousin oliver with a microchip yeah i mean that's fine i just like bring them back like i want all of the and also give me cypher i want everything back from the 90s i I was serious like those things are all terrible but i want them i want six pack to come back and i think wolverine actually would be a really great clearinghouse for a lot of extreme 90s stuff to get integrated into this era and have to answer for itself so besides just wanting more danger all the time and for her to be the one machine ally of mutants in the inevitable war that's coming. Wolverine, 90s Extreme Clearinghouse, that's what I want. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. This Black, White, and Blood series has been something that we've really enjoyed covering the evolution of, whether we're looking at the pages of Wolverine, Deadpool, Elektra, or now Moon Knight. It's definitely been an experience taking a look at these anthologies, and we hope you guys enjoy. Don't forget, we make this show three times a week every week with MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Fridays with a little bit of chrono skimming, our favorite classic issues from the 1980s thrown in for good measure. You guys can follow the show over on X's for Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you guys can follow me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So until next time, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Don't forget, Judgment Day is a coming, and we'll see ya.
Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Exes for Podcast. I am Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA at Twitter and Instagram. That's right, Dazzler AOA at Twitter and Instagram. And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. And you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram occasionally. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. Right now, we're talking about Moon Knight, Black, White, and Blood, number two. We've got three stories. <laughs> the Empty Tomb by Ben Percy and Vanessa Del Rey. We've got A Hard Day's Night by David Propros, Leonardo Romero, and Chris Sotomayor. And we've got Red Blood Glider. So, we've got our first story. I have to say, like, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the story and where it went, but I, I love this art, and the use of the red in this is really good in this segment. But, like, I just, I don't know about the story. I don't know if I really love this iteration of Moon Knight. The art wasn't quite hitting the mark, but I recognize that as being a me thing. That is that, like, if you love the art, please love the art. Like, just for me, I didn't quite connect to it. And I really did not connect to the story. I really did not like it. But overall, like, the uses of red, like you said, were so beautifully done. Honestly, my favorite part of everything that I read was the use and place of the red it was really really well done really thoughtful and it told its own story i am with the two of you on not liking the story i actually i had pretty negative opinion on the story i didn't like the way that it treats moon knight's mental illness as it relates to his mystical duty i didn't really like the way that it characterizes moon knight's relationship to being moon knight i don't think it fits with the current series characterization of mark as somebody who like likes being moon knight and enjoys being the fist of Kanchu and needs it whether or not Kanshu is involved in that equation. I recognize that this is probably like an older story for Moon Knight or something, but or maybe an alternate version. But honestly, a lot of it kind of felt like it was Ben Percy just writing Wolverine in <laughs> X-Lives again. Oh my god, you're not wrong. But the, the art is interesting. Like, I didn't particularly like the way all the figures were drawn, but I really, really appreciate the horror comics aesthetic, the really scratchy, dark inks. Oh. It had that Sienkiewicz vibe sometimes that we often look for in Moon Knight. I think the layout was really interesting. The way that characters shift in and out of frame, mm-hmm. the way the frames start going uh, at angles to identify like a more unhinged part of the story. The mm-hmm. use the red in the gutters as like these mm. jagged lightning bolts that tear the frame into small shards and fragments and shatters. That one page where the entire background and the gutters are all blood red, it does give it this like extremely old school, easy comics horror vibe, but with like intriguing modern experimental panel layouts. So that for me was the real high point of the stories. Yeah, the use of the red and the interesting layouts. Yeah, I think the red, especially like my favorite panel is when just like that i'm free the time inside me has changed him made him a specter of blood and we've got like this blood coming out of mark and it being conchu reforming it like that that right there i love the horror aesthetic of it. i think the the figures the characters aren't beautiful or the or 
you know, the way we love him. Like, that Doctor Strange looks pretty jacked up, so he's not like a normal Strange, but I love the, the use of the backgrounds and how, like you mentioned, Steve, it really, really does bring that EC horror vibe to it. Perfect to me for an anthology to have, you know, at least one art style sort of resemble that cool old school horror stuff. I really appreciate the scene where he's staking a bunch of Brides of Dracula. There's just like a lot of references to different eras of Moon Knight's history and genres that he's in. The one scene where he's like, it's the blood, the endless tide of blood, I wait through nightly. And there's like a figure above him. I was so confused by that because I was like, it looks like Loki, but colored like Daredevil and crouching like Daredevil sort of, mm-hmm. but with Loki horns. And I was like, who is, who is that supposed to be? It never comes up again in the comic, which is fine. It's probably just something from the past, but I don't know. There's like a lot of nice little references in here that make it seem like, yeah, this fits in somewhere in Moon Knight's chronology as like a, an escapade that he had one time. That's kind of the vibe of a lot of these. And I think that's like what, what we're aiming for with Moon Knight, Black, White, and Blood. There's a pretty good use of the, of white space, of, of negative space, more or less. But sometimes it's too heavy in the shadows. And so you end up with a kind of muddled picture where you know that there should be a little bit more information to really uh, get across what's going on in the scene. Like the tightness of space is lessened because you have just such sheer amounts of black in there that you don't feel pressure. You feel nothing but, you know, space because it's just black. If they had given like even a a slight light white line that looked like there it's closing in, then you would feel like the pressure, the constraints and whatnot. But like the beautiful use of red in Doctor Strange's abode is unfortunately a little bit lessened by the very sharp, clean, refined red lines. So instead of that kind of red softly bleeding into stuff like we see with the lamp and with some of the potions and even with his cape, it becomes very, you know, streamlined, slim, just too refined versus the very flowing, soft bleeding nature of the other reds is kind of a sharp contrast. So it takes away from the feel of the comic. If you're trying to give the feel or a sense of somebody sliding into madness or kind of losing what holds them together mentally, it reads better when things do bleed into each other without a sharp demarcation line. It just didn't connect with me. And like if it connected with somebody else, cool. Move on to our second story in this anthology, A Hard Day's Night. I would have to say this was my favorite segment in this anthology issue. Like, Mm -hmm. I do love this art style, like, unabashedly. I think the use of the red here is beautiful. The lettering is beautiful. And I I actually like this story of, you know, the three different personalities inside Mark having to come together and figure out what happened on just a random night of mayhem. This is also my favorite segment of this this edition of Moon White, Black, White, and Blood. Leonardo Romero, the line artist on this, is one of my favorite artists. Absolute genius of comics art, of facial expression, of conveying emotion, and like bombastic fun, action, adventure. He's just got such a timeless style that's so clean and very precise, and it makes such daring use of like white space versus like heavy shadow and blacks. It's very classic, and it's 
that's extremely well achieved and it manages to show you know expression even on mr knight's face when you know mark's not got his face showing but just the mask like chris sotomayor knocks it out of the park with the use of the red like it's very well balanced with the white and black as opposed to the last story where it's just used as an accent every once in a while but it's one of three primary colors in the story and it works extremely well in that way hippos's story is really nice like it's it fits with the modern status quo of moon knight as a cooperative system of identities who work together to try to you know not only to piece together what happened during this night because you know they don't share knowledge equally among his alters but like also just the the like family atmosphere of them as if they're like his brothers and Kanchu his dad sort of like it's it's very nice it's very cozy for a guy who has just bad nights you know this is like called a hard day's night but I also really really appreciate the way that like the adventures each identity has fit with who they are like Jake Lockley has had the night where like he's been fighting vermin in the sewers <laughs> and there's been love it. violent bloody horror going on <clears throat> he had to like stab this guy a ton of times and just rip him up it's a very violent fight and it's very much in keeping with Jake Lockley's personality as like kind of the gritty grim extra violent version of uh, Mark's identities and like the Stephen Grant story is like this <laughs> rich Batman type story it's against so like bombastic. a bombastic I love it yeah it's got a lot of like bombastic technological fights and stuff and he uses the drone and that's very Stephen Grant as like a billionaire Hollywood guy <laughs> and then like Kanchu's fight is like this absolutely mystical huge fight against yet another avatar of a cosmic being I love that each one of them represents each of their identities so well like the kind of fights that they have are the kind of people they are and it's sort of just this conversation catches us up on what a night in the life of Moon Knight is like but it also shows us exactly what kind of fights he has and what kind of people he is what kind of people they are absolutely agree with you the I love this very Dick Tracy-esque yes. strip yes. comic style it works so well especially for this kind of story it was so well done the reds were not just a part of you know the blood it was part of the environment and it really gave you a feel for like what's going on because I can I can almost hear the squeak from like that red leather type material that you get in diners yeah. when you sit down yeah. like I can feel the like the last fight that he has as Mark Spector where he punches the mirror I can feel not only the red of the blood on the mirror but like kind of the reddish light street lamps throw off that gross dingy messed up feel and I'm like I love it it was so well done and the art style fits so well that yeah it went from you know being over the top and bombastic uh very gritty very real and it it's all still one art style but it fit across the board yeah it went from like you know the capers the heist the fighting vermin the fighting supernatural and then just fighting oneself and everything that has been going on and then yeah right back out to doing what you do as a superhero defending 10 square blocks okay can we just say too i think i'm in love with ruby ruby the waitress there is amazing she's just sitting him down and she's like okay and i'm just gonna let you get back to what you're doing she's she's really cute and very funny and approachable to these men and also i think she's like blushing a little bit at jake lockley when she brings the food in i thought that was really cute yeah raven you mentioned earlier mark specter's like gritty fucked up extremely late night in a bathroom kind of deal and something that adds to that vibe is in the, the fragments of mirror that are on the ground 
you can see the agony, like the anguish, the pain, the fear, and the anger in the face of everybody in those reflections. And it's captured so well. Like this one woman is furious. Another is in pain, frightened, crying, and several others are screaming in what looks like shock. And all of that translates so beautifully that it seems it seems effortless. I love how in this story, his mental illness is not treated as if it is a stigma. She sits him down, she takes his order, and she doesn't like, oh my god, this guy is crazy. It's the, oh, he's having a rough night. Go ahead, sit down in the booth. I'll get you your order. Like, she treats him like a, like a, a normal person who's just there to get food, which is exactly how it should be. Regular, apparently, because she's yes. like, I've she got your usual you. ready for you. She knows the deal. She knows the score. She's had him before and she's like, yeah, this is your place to kind of chill after a hard night, mister. <laughs> the color work, the lines work, the, the lettering was so well done. Honestly, I never thought I would enjoy actually looking at lettering and analyzing it so much, but oh my goodness, it, it was so good. You can hear the ring like when somebody walks in the door. That was captured so well. Yeah, Corey Pettit is a master of the game. Like, I, if, if I see VC's Corey Pettit or VC's Ariana Mar, I'm mm. just like, this is going to be some good lettering and I'm always making sure I take note of it because mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably my favorite thing having learned doing, you know, the comics reviews that we do is is learning more about lettering in its place, right? We can all always notice the art and the story in it. Good lettering, you don't always notice as much. That's the beautiful thing is when it's really good lettering, you almost don't notice it because it becomes such an integral part of the story that it just boom, it blends in and you're just it immerses you in that story and you actually have to go back and like pick out where, you know, sound effects or letters changed because in my mind, like sometimes when I'm reading like say Scotty Young's uh, Strange Academy, the lettering is always so good. It gives me everybody's voice and like that's just going on in my head and it becomes almost automatic that I don't notice it until I go back and then I'm like, oh wow yeah, they did change that font a little bit. Oh, that's why I heard them yelling instead of whispering. Yeah, the lettering and the coloring both interact really beautifully in this issue. Really point out one of the fun bits of the conceit of having black, white, and red as the only colors. Like, so there's a scene where we're seeing Vermin fight Jake Lockley, and there's the usual mark of having, like, bloody sounds or, like, gross stabbing sounds being lettered in red, you know, like, dripping with blood over the white background. But when we get to the scene where it's just a pool of blood that Vermin's being drowned in by Mr. Knight, and there's red all around, instead of having that, like, you have the gross blood splattered splack wood wood cracked lettering, but it's in stark white to contrast with all the blood that's on the ground because there's too much blood. You can't do a blood <laughs> red letter there. And likewise, on the next page, you've got the usually sharp rat a tat but it's against like a red sunset background or outside, so it's in stark white. Down below, you have the explosion where it goes from white to red across the wakroom as yeah. it goes from the middle of the white explosion out into the blackness of the night. And that's so effective. A good letterer in colors will look at the conceit of the comic and be like, all right, this is obviously what we're going to do with this. It's not only what we have to do because it's the the colors that we have available and we need to contrast them, but we can also make it work so that it furthers the, you know, the visceral feeling of these action scenes. If they had just done a simple, like, blood red, like, lettering on it, it wouldn't have been as nicely effective. I just love the juxtaposition between, like, the 
bombastic superhero aspect of Kanchu fighting Juggernaut. I love that panel. <laughs> like That's like one of my favorite panels I've seen ever. The bright red in that scene, like the Juggernaut's red, like almost makes me, you know, not even realize that the page isn't even colored except for in red because it fits so perfectly. My mind just sees the, you know, light page of Kane. But when you contrast that with the scene where Mr. Knight is, uh, you know, killing and he's got all that red there, but then like if you look at the body on it, it's got like all the, you know, gnarly, nasty bones sticking out. So like we've got this cool, really heroic vibe and we've also got this cool, really horror vibe. I love how big Juggernaut is here. Juggernaut's so big, like his helmet is like the size of Mark's body. Like it's ridiculous. (laughs) Also shout out to that little triangle Illuminatus like framing of directly above it with his hands in prayer. Very good. A little bit of a callback to the style that Greg Smallwood was doing on the Lemire run. This segment got the assignment right because like these things are supposed to be you know giving us a little bit of insight into moon knight you know these tales may or may not be in continuity honestly if this is in continuity and if if it's not either way this is like one of my favorite moon knight stories so on to the last segment in this blood red glider this was not for me i will say this was not i'm not the target audience for the story it very much seemed to glamorize the negative parts of his mercenary careers i didn't like the story at all because it's just another story of moon knight being like a colonist imperialist mercenary for the wrong kinds of people and then like yeah at the very end of it he's like he's still in that imperialist mindset and he's like i'm gonna fight i'm ready to fight russian interests in this african country that's fictional and made up and and like in the very three last three panels he's like and then sephora told me no don't do that and so i didn't and i went home and it's like okay but did you learn a lesson about colonialist interests in africa did you learn anything about this beyond somebody telling you no you shouldn't be here and this is not your place like maybe the rest of the story could have told that but the last three panels just shoving that in it just makes us feel like a colonialist fantasy and then at the end being like but remember it's bad that's not like a good way to tell an anti story the art and the story and the craft is clearly there it's very mike diodato-esque there's a lot of work put in but i don't like the result i don't like how it makes people look it felt like they were trying to be quote-unquote woke but you can see or feel that they are doing it from a point of somebody who is conservative and trying to do a quote-unquote woke comic so that it fits with whatever blah 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 and it just it doesn't it doesn't read well at all it's the old mercenary days when i was like stealing shit that didn't belong to me and who's the person who gets killed the black guy who's the person that i i need to go and then avenge the black i will avenge my black brother who has fallen like motherfucker seriously and then then when he shows up because of of the wife like every femme presenting person in this book is sexualized between the secretary with her her sneakers up on the desk and then there's a woman bending over in the background in the next panel when he's in the hotel so all you really see is boobs and short skirt this woman who apparently hates mark and lured him there but she's sitting there in this like cocktail dress heels in front of a bed like what the fuck this whole story is like a blatantly like western white man's fantasy yeah. of what it's like to be involved in military action overseas and it's like nothing has consequences you're just over there and you're fighting your enemy and then at the end of it it wants to make this push towards like oh but this is actually bad but it's like then why did you tell this whole story because this whole story is such an imperialist fantasy i mean you start off on the wrong foot by starting off right away with a fictional 
fictional African country named Nairobi, like as if it's Nairobi, but you just wanted to change it slightly and make it a country. Like, okay, and how was her name Flora? What? <laughs> right, and giving her that haircut. That haircut was awfully done. Like her edges were not snatched. The baby hairs were not laid down. It did not look clean. And I'm sorry, but when you are talking about African women and their hair, or even African American women and their hair, hair is a very important aspect. And yet they did nothing with. It. And you're right about her hair. This she wore this hot as hell cocktail dress and these come mm-hmm. fuck me heels, and she's not gonna do her hair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the red in this is like barely used and it, it seems almost like an afterthought. Like, yes, give the beautiful woman that Mark has to talk to a red cocktail dress. Sure, that's an yeah. uninspired and very basic choice. Give the red butterflies a tattoo. Sure. What does it say? I don't know. I, do, I don't think that this makes good enough use of the medium at play. I think it's a comic that if I read in a colored comic, like a, a regularly colored comic, I would think it was just not the kind of art I come to appreciate. It's got a little too much of the realism at the expense of like doing anything fun or interesting with the characters. It's yeah. such a boilerplate like Western colonial story that I just it's whatever. Like it doesn't it doesn't tell me a lesson other than Sephora didn't want him to involve with Russian interests at the end, and also mercenary <laughs> was bad. And also yeah. there's a civil war in this African nation, but it's definitely Mark's Mark feels completely comfortable being involved in it several times. This felt like a lost Moon Knight issue from the nineties. More like from the 80s. I mean, the art style is very 90s, uh, so yeah. they did unfortunately do those storylines yeah, in the 90s. It's, it's like a storyline from the 80s with yeah. art from the 90s, and overall, it's 2022. You've really missed the mark. I did want to say that Mark is drawn really hot in this comic. Oh, yeah. There's this like extremely weirdly homoerotic panel at the very end where he's standing over the butterfly dude, and he's got like his tight briefs on under his costume and like his there's like his tits are hanging out yeah. because his shirt got slid open right at the at the boobs yeah i don't know it's a it's a hot look <laughs> that is a really hot panel I but unfortunately it does do the thing where it directly reminds me of greg land style when greg land was tracing porn a lot <laughs> it's very erotic but it's a rot he literally just gutted a guy <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah like it's inappropriate Maybe maybe that gets him hot. Yeah, he yeah. turns him on. We, we, we have decided that over <laughs> yeah. the course of the movie. Some of the dialogue in this is cheesy, but it could be fun too. Like the class, and he's like, oh, "I'm class." We were reading this last <laughs> night together, and I laugh out loud when he goes yes. class, and the guy goes, "I am class." It's like, <laughs> are you writing like your Stan Lee? Like, come on, what? And what kind of name is class? He That's the only thing I would know. Listen, the wasted because this kind of butterfly eats jungle rot. Uh, whatever that <laughs> means. For fuck's sake, yeah. right? Like that's never explained. There's there's no significance to that. Like none whatsoever. Because also, like they're not exactly in a jungle. It looks like they're on the edge of a a well watered area. So like a delta, maybe. Maybe. Russian tats have meaning. For this dude to have one big giant butterfly tattoo, well, butterflies have a very particular meaning in in Russian prison art, and he has no other tat. Maybe one day. He beat up Betsy Braddock, and that's why he has a butterfly tattoo. <laughs> I think a more constructive thing would have been like to tell an anti-colonial story from the beginning of a story. If yeah. you want to tell that kind of story. Rather than one that just echoes extremely done and done and done and done again in Western media, militaristic stories about intervening in a civil war in a fictionalized African nation against Russian interests. It, it feels like out of date and somehow timely at the same time. Like I know that we're coming right back around to Cold War sentiment in America currently, but like this kind of story 
story feels obsolete. Felt like I was reading a Punisher's wardrobe. Yeah. Okay. So it felt like mm. that mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. don't want. Yeah. You know? Um. And maybe that's on me. But I'm not the target for this story. Absolutely. Are there some things that I really did enjoy? Yes. Mark looks hot as hell in it. The pencils are solid. Just a style that's. Mm-hmm. older i would have loved a better use of the red but for a story that i don't resonate with it you know i i can see where the writer was going and i can see the intention and it's laid out to tell the story he wanted to by the way i just wanted to note the blood red glider is a real butterfly so there was some research done into this and it is from africa I did love seeing Marlene again, too. Like, you know, even though we didn't get to see much of her. Yeah, it was nice to see Marlene for uh, half a second yeah. for the first time in a long time. Yeah. So, like, that was a nice thing. Nice yeah, I think the story suffers heavily from being right after the Leonardo Romero yeah. and uh, David Pipose and Chris Sotomayor story just previously. I think that if it was just this Ben Percy and Vanessa R. Del Rey and Pat Searcher story, I, I mean, I may not have actually picked up this comic if those were the only two stories in it, to be perfectly frank. But at least they would thematically and, like, in the vibe fit better yeah. together. Yeah. That's the, the joy and struggles of anthology series. You're trying to tell a very condensed story that gives your version of the character. And that's what they did. They gave their version of the character. And, you know, just the one I connected with the most, obviously, was that second story, which I really loved. The Hard Day's Night. A Hard Day's Night. Yeah, a Hard Day's Night is a Moon Knight story that I'm going to remember. Yeah. It's like, honestly, it's one of the nicer short Moon Knight stories I've read. And I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, the second story just really hit it out of the park. And I think really filled the brief, which just makes me so much more critical of the other two stories unfortunately so yeah but that is the problem with anthologies is sometimes it is hard to match the energy across all the stories because everybody is telling their own story um and and focusing on their own aspects so yeah yeah. i would just say these first two issues there have been a few stories i've really connected with and some stories they didn't as much but like that's okay like i think the stories that i did connect with in each issue were made it worth it like the Hard Day's Night made it worth purchase of Black, White, and Blood. And, you know, I think anybody out there listening, like, you're going to find a story in here that'll connect with your comics reading yeah. love. Like, because these do present three different types of stories. And, and a strong diversity of art styles, yeah. right? Like, yeah. there's, there's a lot of different stuff going on, different different stories being told, different uses of color. You might maybe find something that you like. For me, I'm three for six in these Moon, White, Moon, Moon Knight stories so far. So I think yeah. I think that's good for yeah. an anthology series. Yeah. yeah. I think I liked two out of the six it's kind of rocky for me but i like moon knight like i really really enjoy moon knight overall so i'll probably still pick up the next issue yeah i'll definitely pick up the next issue as somebody who identifies as a moon knight reader now and you know i am always looking to see what new and interesting artists they'll bring to the table and what kind of different stories that they'll bring because sometimes it really hits and when it really hits it really hits and when it doesn't i can just not read it again you know agree exactly Exactly. 